Well, on March 21st, 1748, a ship on its way home to England in the North Atlantic was caught up in a violent storm that threatened to sink it. And one sailor on board remembered waking up to find his room filling with water. So he ran for the deck to help in the efforts to restore the ship. And as he was running, the captain stopped him and urged him to go back to his cabin and bring his knife, for he'd need it on deck. And the crew member who took that man's place on the ladder was immediately swept overboard the moment he got on deck. The first sailor, having fetched his knife, then worked the pumps from three in the morning until noon. He slept for an hour, and then he took the helm and steered the ship until midnight. And while at the wheel, he had time to reflect on his life up to that point, on how close he had just come to his death. He was a man who'd encountered Christians in his life. He was familiar with the basics of the Christian gospel. So that night, at the helm, he began to pray. Within a few days, as the storm began to calm, he found a Bible and began to read it. And within a few months, that sailor, called John Newton, came to put his faith in Jesus Christ and began to follow him. And Newton would always look back to that storm, that moment in 1748, as the day when the God of grace acted to rescue him and bring him to new life in Jesus. Newton went on to be a great pastor and preacher. He was a prominent supporter of the abolition of the slave trade. And he was one of the greatest hymn writers of his day. And a few moments ago, many of you will know, we sang the words of his most famous hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And that song, Amazing Grace, has been described by some as the world's most enduring song. And it's actually certainly the world's most recorded song. It's been recorded by artists as various as as Pete Seeger, Janis Joplin, Rod Stewart, even the mighty Robson and Jerome brought out their version a few years ago. And few churches in this country don't sing it at some point in their services. It's still sung widely across the Western world. Amazing grace, how sweet the signs. But perhaps as a result of its popularity, I know plenty of Christians who don't enjoy singing it. They feel they've sung it too often. They feel that that word, grace, has just become another piece of Christian jargon, overused and barely understood. Perhaps they've sung that song in churches that only pay lip service to grace. They sing the song, but if an actual wretch like John Newton appeared at the door, he'd be turned away. See, whatever the reason, the grace that Newton celebrates in that song, it often fails to provoke praise from many people familiar with the song. And instead, the question we find ourselves asking is the question that formed the title of a best-selling book back in 1997. What's so amazing about grace. And this morning, we come to the second in our short series looking at the book of Jonah. And I've entitled this series, A Scandalous Grace. But again, I'm aware that for many of us here who are used to coming to church, who are used to talking to Christians, 
grace just doesn't seem that scandalous anymore. It's one of those Christian terms that, that sounds great, but if we're honest, we're more than a little hazy about what it actually means. See, for a lot of us, grace has come to describe God's cosy and indulgent side. It refers to those times when God decides to turn a blind eye to our sin and to give us another chance. And, and to be honest, well, where's the scandal in that? Isn't that what God should be doing? Do we all deserve a second chance? I suspect that for many of us, grace just isn't that amazing anymore. It doesn't excite us because we just presume, well, of course God's going to give me a second chance. I'm a good person. What's so amazing about this grace that John Newton wrote about? Well, I believe the prayer we're looking at this morning in Jonah chapter 2 can help us begin to answer that question. To rediscover something of the biblical concept of God's grace. And that is a grace that is far from indulgence. A grace that we can only enjoy at enormous cost to God. And a grace that's rooted both in God's holiness and in God's love. See, we've got a a prayer before us here. An amazing prayer of thanksgiving to God. A prayer that John Newton would have echoed wholeheartedly. And a prayer that we can learn from and, and experience as well today as we follow in Jonah's footsteps. And first of all, we need to see from chapter 1, verse 17, that Jonah discovers that the grace of God in his experience is far from being just another piece of religious jargon. Because as Jonah is thrown overboard into a raging ocean, he quickly discovers that the grace of God is his only hope. And Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving in chapter 2 is is bookended by, by the miraculous grace of God. Grace for Jonah is a miracle. And that's the first thing we want to see this morning. God's grace is always miraculous. And to be honest, you might miss that from reading this this chapter, because the way God's grace is recorded for us, it's such an understated and, and straightforward way. Let me just read verse 17 of chapter 1 again. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah didn't drown when he was thrown overboard. Back in chapter 1, the sailors who threw him in presumed he would drown. Jonah presumed that he would drown, but he didn't. And why didn't he? Because the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. He was inside the fish three days and three nights. And then if you turn to verse 10 of chapter 2, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Again, this is no remarkable fluke of the natural world. This isn't just my program, animals do the funniest things when they swallow drowning men. Jonah didn't just get lucky here. Jonah's rescue took an act of God, a miracle of God. The Lord got Jonah into the fish before he drowned, and he got Jonah out of the fish and onto dry land three days later. God's rescue of Jonah was a miracle. And we need to see this morning that God's rescue of anyone to lavish his grace on them is a miracle. Because we have to be honest, modern readers today have a bit of a problem 
with this bit of Jonah, don't we? I mean, we can just about cope with the storm in chapter 1. But what is a modern skeptic going to do with this great fish swallowing Jonah up to rescue him from drowning? It's the best known section of the book, but many readers just dismiss it as fiction. But see, when they do that, they're forgetting one thing. The God of the Bible is a God of the miraculous. He is a God who works miracles. No, it doesn't usually happen that a man about to dry and get swallowed by a fish. That's why we call it a miracle. And Jonah celebrates it as a miracle. He thanks God for it. Chapter 2, verse 2. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help and you listened to my cry. It took a miracle of God to rescue Jonah's life from drowning. And the rest of Scripture tells us it always takes a miracle of God to save anyone and restore them to a right relationship with himself. Again, some modern day readers dismiss this rescue via a great fish as unbelievable. But I want to suggest that what is truly unbelievable is that a community of Christians exists here in East Oxford today. That there's a church called Magdalen Rose that claims to follow Jesus Christ in Oxford today. That around the world there are communities of Christians gathering together in different places with different styles to worship that same Jesus today. And that every day men and women and children are coming to faith in Jesus even today. That is unbelievable. It takes a miracle for that to be a reality. The fact that a worldwide Christian church exists today is a miracle, the Bible tells us. And it should amaze us far more than a great fish in Jonah chapter 1. Because there are so many reasons why people would never naturally follow Jesus today. Just in our culture, focusing on it, there are so many other philosophies and worldviews that people have to choose from. And let's be honest, individual Christians, individual Christian communities are often a very poor advertisement for a life of following Jesus. They put people off. To really encounter Jesus, we have to go back to the New Testament, to books that were written 2,000 years ago. And again, that just doesn't come naturally to us. There are so many obstacles to people encountering the grace of God today. And the Bible actually paints it in even starker terms. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul describes the spiritual realities going on all around us, behind the scenes. And he writes, The God of this age, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, Paul says here, people are blind to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They cannot see the light of that gospel on their own. But that is where the miracle-working God of Christianity comes in. Because Paul goes on 
in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4 to explain. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. For anyone to come to faith in Jesus, Paul says, God has to work a miracle in their lives. The same God who created the world by saying, let there be light, has to bring about a new creation in our hearts to enable us to trust in Him. That same Creator God who is sovereign over great fish is also sovereign over granting new life and forgiveness and a relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian sitting here this morning, God has performed a miracle in you. A miracle far greater than this fish swallowing Jonah. So praise God for that. Thank him for that. Take Jonah's words in chapter 2 here and worship God for rescuing you from death and giving you new life. Because the only reason God can demonstrate his grace to sinful people like us is because he sent not a great fish, but his only son, Jesus, into the world to rescue us. C.S. Lewis described that as the grand miracle. God becoming a human being, entering our world to reveal himself and to die on a cross in our place. That's the grand miracle. Jesus entering our world and God's grace towards us as a result is always miraculous. So if you have friends or loved ones who don't know Jesus yet, well then this understanding of grace has to lead us to pray for them, doesn't it? Actually it's not in our hands. It's not about how eloquently we argue things actually about God working a miracle in their lives. So we need to pray alongside our lives, alongside our discussions. We need to pray that God would shine his light in that loved one's heart. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you're not sure about this Jesus Christ, well then please pray that God would work this miracle in your life. Pray for God to shine his light in your heart that you could see him because you need that miracle just as desperately as Jonah did here. God's grace is always miraculous. But another aspect comes across of God's grace here that we often easily forget and that is that God's grace is rooted in both his holiness and in his love. See, from experiencing the storm in chapter 1 and his rescue from the storm in verse 17, Jonah discovers that God is both more holy than he ever thought and he is more loving than he ever imagined. Again, we saw last week, if you were here, that that Jonah, he's a prophet of God. He's an orthodox believer. He's someone who's served God in the past. But by running away from God, In chapter 1, he shows that he has forgotten the sheer holiness of God. 
See, Jonah thought he could run away from God. He thought that that small act of disobedience didn't really matter to this great big God up there. We thought that Jonah probably reasoned he was replaceable, that that God had better things to do with his time than chase after one disobedient prophet. But in chapter 1, God showed Jonah just how wrong he was. Jonah's disobedience mattered to God. God couldn't just ignore it. God refused to let Jonah just run away from him. God was not indifferent to Jonah's rebellion. Jonah's actions mattered to God. And we need to see that with Jonah, that we cannot appreciate the grace of God without first recognising the holiness of God. God's grace is never God just turning a blind eye to our sin. God cannot just ignore our sin, our selfishness, the damage we do to ourselves and other people. He is just too holy for that. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah came to recognise that for himself. Let me just read verse 3 for us again. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. See, Jonah's saying, before you rescued me, God, you actually put me in peril. This was you causing this storm. This was you bringing me to my senses. Jonah had to see just how serious his disobedience was before he could be rescued by God. Verse 4, I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. See, God's grace is always rooted in his holiness. As John Newton put it in that song, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Part of our response to the grace of God must be to recognise and fear the holy God we have ignored and rejected in our lives, and to ask him to forgive us for that. See, if we don't get the holiness of God, we will never get the grace of God. God's grace isn't just indulging us, just letting us away with it. Because we learn elsewhere in Scripture, God's grace is supremely demonstrated at the cross of Jesus. If God was able just to turn a blind eye and let us away with our sin, Jesus, his only son, would not have had to suffer and die. But in order for God to demonstrate his grace to us, our sin had to be dealt with. The penalty had to be paid. And that is what Jesus did at that cross. God couldn't just ignore Jonah's sin and God can't just ignore our sin. His grace is rooted in his decision to pay the price for our sin for himself in the place of those who will trust in Jesus. When we look at the cross, we're looking at a God of unimaginable holiness dealing 
with the sin of his people that he cannot ignore. But again, as John Newton recognised, as we can recognise, when the grace of God provokes our fear, that same cross that shows the holiness of God demonstrates the love of God as well. And that's another thing Jonah learns here, that if Jonah is more holy than he thought, if God, sorry, is more holy than Jonah thought, God is also more loving than Jonah imagines. Because as Jonah sank under the waves there, he thought, well, the game is up. I've been caught bang to rights. I am a sinner. And the sailors know I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die. But again, God was not finished with Jonah. And as that fish swallowed him up, that was a demonstration to Jonah of God's extravagant love for this disobedient prophet. See, we need to see, in a sense, the injustice of what God does here with Jonah. We need to hold these things together. God is just. He is holy. He cannot ignore sin. But at the same time, in his grace, he, while satisfying his justice, is remarkably unjust in forgiving sinful, foolish people like Jonah and like us. We should actually come to Jonah too thinking, that's not fair. Jonah actually blatantly rejected God. He not only endangered his own life, he endangered a boatload of sailors who were innocent in this storm. And now God, God rescues him from that. It's not fair. But it is a demonstration of God's grace and his love for Jonah. Because God didn't want Jonah to drown. He saved Jonah because his purposes for Jonah were good. His purposes for Jonah were very different to Jonah's purposes for himself. We need to see that because they still involve him being sent to Nineveh, the very thing he had run away from God to avoid. But in this prayer, in the belly of this fish, Jonah is slowly coming to discover that God's purposes for him were the expression of his love for Jonah. And that Jonah could trust in those purposes. God demonstrated his love for for Jonah in providing that fish. God demonstrates his love for us in his decision 2,000 years ago to send his son Jesus to a cross. And that is a demonstration of love that is present tense today. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's saying we don't need to wait for another demonstration of God's love. It's not that God's love is dependent on how our day is going, on how the relationships that matter to us are going, on how our jobs are going. No, God demonstrates, present tense, his love in an action he performed 2,000 years ago that our day, that our sin cannot change. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the demonstration of God's love for sinful people like us today. 
And Jonah's time in the belly of that fish was later taken by Jesus as a demonstration of God's grace to all foolish and sinful people. In Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus linked the grace God showed towards Jonah with the even greater grace God was about to show through him. Jesus said, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus saying there, He has entered our world to die. To spend three days and three nights in the grave. But that is a finite time. Because Jesus, in those words, is saying again, he is going to break free of the grave. And he did that first Easter morning. He destroyed sin and he destroyed death. That is the miracle of God's grace. God shows grace to undeserving people and he does it through the miraculous, holy and loving grace demonstrated through Jesus' death and resurrection. God's grace, we need to see, is rooted in the Son of Man who, like Jonah, spent three days and three nights in the grave. And as we finish this morning, we need to see that when we grasp this grace of God, when we ask God to open our eyes to it, that grace is ultimately life-transforming. Because by the end of Jonah 2, Jonah is a changed man. He responds to God's grace towards him by entrusting his life afresh to God and to God's purposes for him. Let me just read verse 9. For us. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Now we're going to see next week that Jonah's understanding of God still has a long way to go. This is not Jonah perfect at the end of chapter 2. But for now, as we leave this chapter, I want us to see the difference God's grace makes to the way we should live our lives as individuals, the way we should live our life as a church community here at Malvern Road. Because this grace of God, in all its vastness, its miraculous power, in its demonstration of the holiness and love of a holy God, it demands a response from us. The American pastor, Tim Keller, once recalled a conversation he'd have with a woman in his church in New York City. And she'd been a churchgoer for for many years, but she confessed to him that she'd never really heard God's grace clearly explained to her in the past. She'd never really heard that God alone had the power to save her. She couldn't save herself. She'd never heard that, that, that he does that on the basis of both his holiness and his love, that God is far holier than our good works could ever wish to be. But he's also far more loving in the way he lavishes his grace at such cost to himself. And she went on to say that she wasn't actually surprised that so many people like her shied away from that 
that robust biblical understanding of God's grace focused on the cross of Jesus. She said to him, well, the grace of God, it's dangerous, isn't it? And when, when Simkeller asked her why she thought it was dangerous, she answered, well, if I'm saved by his grace, then there's nothing God can't ask of me. If I'm saved by his grace, then there's nothing God can't ask of me. I think she's right. If God in his holiness satisfied that holiness at the expense of his only son, how can we just reject him or treat him with contempt? When God in his love outstripped any human understanding of love by loving his enemies, how can we shy away from loving people that we find difficult, that we find awkward, that we find just a trial to be around? If we are saved by grace, God can ask anything of us because there is nothing he asks of us that he wasn't prepared to do himself. Jonah comes to discover that at the end of chapter 2. And so he goes to Nineveh. What is God calling us to do today? Is he calling us to respond to his grace by finally, once and for all, forgiving that person that we struggle with so much? Is he telling us to respond to his grace by finally, once and for all, owning up to that sin that has hurt that other person so deeply and asking God to forgive us and asking that person to forgive us. Do we respond to God's grace today by finally, prayerfully, sharing Him with people that we love, that we are so reluctant to speak of Him with? What is God asking us to do today in response to His grace? We don't respond to his grace alone. God goes ahead of us always. Just as he sent that fish to rescue Jonah, he is going ahead of us. But he demands a response. Because we cannot just ignore this grace. This grace that cost him so much. And that benefits us so richly.